I have one thing before we get started, and, and that is we've had some people ask a little bit about the art that's on the walls. Uh, last year, uh, Luke Severn uh, did all the photos when he was in South Africa, and when people bought his artwork, he actually sent that money to the village that he worked with there. Uh, Austin, the guy that plays drums, did all of these on this wall. And, and I asked him, because a couple people have asked, if he'd be willing to sell them or make new ones, and he said, Sure. <laughs> So if you want to, you put a little card at the last one on the wall back there. If you want some information, you want to like pick up one of these, or you can make something different that's kind of like this, you can go ahead and do that. I told him I'd let you guys know. It was, it was about um, earlier this year, I said, hey, at Christmas, I want you to do this. And so about a month ago, I'm like, how many you got? And he goes, don't worry, I'll be ready. So, and he came in and hung them all himself because I would have just destroyed it. But there you go. It's kind of a good job. Hey, welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And these are actually short, small quarter sheets. During the month of December, uh, typically our gospel communities, and a lot of you don't gather together. That, well, you gather together, but I don't know. You don't want to talk about this stuff, apparently. So what we did is we made quarter sheets. So on the, on the front of all the verses that we go through, there's a, there's a short little paragraph that kind of recapitulates what we're talking about. And then on the bo- bottom, there's just two questions. And I'd encourage you, you know, during the week to maybe grab somebody else and sit down and just ask those two questions. They're short, they're simple, they're easy. And when we start our next series in January, we're going to have full sermon notes again. So just be prepared for full pages then. Whatever, okay. If you- if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. You click on More and Then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS. In your smartphone, you get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, these little things, all on your phone. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who are wise like these men and that we would be those who also who come to worship you, and that we would understand more fully as our lives and days go forward what you have done to rescue us. And by living in the humbleness of that, we become more and more wise, and we could also point people to you, the one who was born king of the Jews. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is our last series of 2018. We will culminate this on Christmas Eve, obviously talking about Jesus, kind of weird how all my ideas can work out in my head and then go to paper like this series. I've been thinking about doing a series called We Three Kings for a really long time and five weeks out of it. Uh, This is how it's going to go, so you have a heads up. I hear you like that. Uh, Today we're going to cover what most people think of when they hear We Three Kings or The Three Kings. We're going to talk about these wise men who go to the birth of Jesus. And then over the next three weeks, we're going to cover Israel's greatest kings. We're going to cover King Saul the first, King David the greatest, King Solomon the wisest. And then on Christmas Eve, we're going to culminate that with this look at Jesus as the ultimate king. Today is going to kind of be like a meandering history lesson for you. If you have, if you went through the reason for God and you felt like it was really heavy, today's going to be a little bit lighter, but more on the on the history side. So if you like history, today's your holiday Sunday. If you hate history, suck it up. 
Okay? We're going we're gonna to go through this thing and, and, and see how we end. Hopefully I don't lose you, and hopefully this makes a little bit of sense. Because if you're like me, and in some ways I hope you're not, uh, but if you're like me, uh, when I used to think about the three kings, the three wise men, I always wondered why do we call them kings and the scriptures call them wise men? How does that come about? And I figure if I wondered that, maybe you would too. Some people actually point out that if Luke wrote about the wise men and not Matthew, we'd have all kinds of more details. Because Luke wrote to Gentiles, uh, Luke would explain a lot of concepts that people who weren't Jews would understand, uh, but we don't have that. Matthew wrote about them, and what he essentially says is, behold, wise men from the east came. It's like, well, where's the east? What does that even mean? Because as Matthew writes to Jews, they would typically have an idea of what that actually meant. When I think east, like that door is east, right? So they came through that door? No, there's a lot that goes along behind this. Uh, Chad Ashby very sarcastically writes this. His description is so utterly specific, in quotes, that church traditions in dozens of countries claim to be their countries of origin. Everyone is like, no, they came from us. No, they came from us. Now, the word Matthew uses there that we see wise men, this is this word called magos or, or magi. And these were like, they could have been kings or wise men or sorcerers or astrologers. Christians for centuries have been trying to figure out where these guys actually came from. As a matter of fact, in 200 AD, Tertullian, one of the original church fathers, he coined this term called the Trinity. We talked about him last week a little bit. He lays out all the arguments that the Magi were probably astrologers by trade, but they were considered kings. Uh, You get to the Middle Ages and, and my boy John Calvin well, I like a lot of things he writes, but oh my goodness, he did not like anybody who thought they were kings. He actually wrote this. He says, Beyond all doubt, they have been stupefied by her righteous judgment of God that all might laugh at their gross ignorance. And I'm like, whoa, dude, calm down, okay? Just Christmas, calm down. And then you get to first century, you get this guy named Pliny the Elder. And Pliny the Elder writes some chapters in his history book about these magi, and they sound like they just show up from Hogwarts in his writings. It's really weird. They have all these magic potions, one of which they take boiled earthworms and they put it in your ear to cure a toothache. I think it would, actually, because I'd be so grossed out by the earthworms in my ear, I wouldn't think about my teeth anymore. It's crazy. I'll give you four facts uh, about these magi and what that means. Uh, The word magos or magi is of Persian origin. That's number one. Secondly, even though it was Persian in origin, a lot of people throughout the region started to use this term for their wise people, for the people they would seek counsel from. So it was a widely used word. Uh, The first century historian Philo actually referred to Balaam from Numbers 22 to 24 as a mage or a, or a magi, that, that kind of thing. I, I just, just call it Gandalf. You'll be okay. Uh, fifth, or third thing, by the, by the 5th century, Herodotus writes in his book on, on history that these magi had actually become political people who are now vying for political power and they stopped being simply wise men. And then fourthly, various kings in the ancient world would frequently consult these magi and their skill in interpreting omens and signs and the stars. And it's really interesting that the Persians and their magi Magi actually crop up in the biblical timeline. Uh, You'll see them in the book of Daniel and the book of Esther. And there's one statement in the book of Esther at the very beginning in in Esther 1, 13 and 14, where the king talks to his magi, his wise men, who are also seven princes who sat on thrones. So they really could have been wise men and kings at the same time. Now, what I think Matthew is doing when he writes about this is simply brilliant. And I'm essentially going to give you three different sermons this morning. They're all going to be short. 
Don't worry. It's my Christmas miracle for you. I'm going I'm to be short today, okay, because <laughs> it never happens. But I will give you three short messages to kind of bring this together and help you understand this. So the first one is, uh, let's call them magi, okay? Let's, let's call them that. That's the term that's used in the Greek there. Again, history says they were astrologers. They were interpreters of omens. They follow a star to Jesus to worship him as the king of the Jews. And so they go into Jerusalem, and they're looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews, and they're very blunt and they say this to a guy named King Herod. Now, King Herod also had the title of the king of the Jews. It was given to him by Caesar. And Herod was a paranoid, bloodthirsty nutter, and he killed tons of people who wanted to take his throne. But these guys show up, and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, Herod, again, was known as Herod the Great, but he had that title, the king of the Jews. And when these guys say it, these wise men, these magi, he's probably thinking, oh, my goodness, they saw an omen in the sky. There is a new king of the Jews. i got to find that person and kill him so he doesn't take my position. Normally, Herod would have killed the wise men, but they were very respected, so he didn't. And then he just wants to follow them all sneaky-like and find where this child was. Now, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Herod... He is half Hebrew, and he probably knew the stories of his half heritage about wise men. And a lot of these ideas of wise men, at this time, they trace back to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, it will start with the Israelites being hauled up into captivity by a foreign superpower, much like Israel at the time that Matthew is writing this, is under the thumb of Rome, a foreign superpower. And the captivity shows how Daniel, this activity is how Daniel starts. And it's important to notice right from the beginning of Daniel that God wants people clear on what has actually taken place. Daniel 1, 1 and 2 starts like this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. So God gives his people into the Babylonian's hand. God puts them there. Daniel is going to end up being a book that's about control and identity, much like Herod's life is about control and identity. I think Matthew is really brilliant in how he pulls this together. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, who's ruler of Babylon at the time, says, I don't just want to stop with destroying these people. I want you to take their best young men, the, the smartest and the quickest and the brightest, and I want you to put them in a training program for three years to teach them how to become Babylonians. And what King Nebuchadnezzar is doing is he's not just trying to destroy their past and their history. He also wants to steal the Jewish future away as well. And this is where all the stories, if you ever read through the book of Daniel, people love so much. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den. It all comes out of this. They become students in Babylon. And they don't just learn. They excel at it. And they do it better than anybody else. Now, go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, you'll see these guys in their new position in Babylon. They will have positions of authority, of oversight. They will be these wise men in, in that place. So Nebuchadnezzar, during this time, he has a dream. Daniel 2, verses 1 through 3. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the, the Chaldeans, be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, 
I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he is not your average dude. Nebuchadnezzar has two speeds, okay? It is really happy or really furious, and he's zero to 60 going either direction. He's really either happy or there's no in the middle for him. So he has a dream. He brings in his religious consulting community, these counselors, and he says, tell me what the dream was about. And they say, great, tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it was about. And he says, no, I got a better idea. You tell me what the dream was, and then tell me what the dream means. And if you don't, chapter 2, verse 5, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Like, Zero to 60. There you go. He's going that direction. He is the prototype for every over-the-top villain, like, like Dr. Evil or General Zod or Lex Luthor. I like to call him actually Lexikonezer. I don't know if you care, but anyway. This, this guy is maniacal. You tell me this or I'm going to huff and puff and then blow your house down. So these counselors, these, these wise men, they're at least they're like, tell us the dream. If you tell us the dream, we can at least make something up. Right? Uh, chapter 2, verse 10. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand man. No great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, and this is an important line, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. There is a political and religious structure that says wherever, whoever the gods are, their dwelling is not among people. What does the king say? Well, stinks for you. You better figure it out. God takes Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, places them in this oppressive culture. God puts them there because this story is about truth and the real God and what God is going to do and that God is really in control. Daniel and his friends will eventually step forward in this place. Uh, They will tell the king his dream. They will interpret the dream and they will save all of the counselors, all of the wise men. Daniel and his friends will get promoted at this point to be like head counselors, head wise men. It's very nice. But then what will eventually happen is Babylon will be overrun by the Persians, the Medes. They, they, they will come in underneath a guy named Darius. And when Darius is there, Darius doesn't kill the wise men because they're pretty hard to come by. And the wise men are always seen to be above the fray. And so Darius comes in, Daniel keeps his position. But at this point, actually the word there for counselor will actually change to the word magi. It'll change to the word for that because that's what he became under Darius because it was now Persian. Now, when we hear the wise men today, we typically think, oh, the birth of Jesus and the wise men. When, when the people in Israel at this time that this was written by Matthew, when they heard this wise man or, or magi, they would think really back to Daniel, Meshach, Abednego. They would think about this there and what those wise men took and that whole story. These, these counselors in Babylon say, no, why, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. But Daniel comes in, and Daniel will say in chapter 2, 27 and 28, no wise men, enchanters, uh, magicians or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So you fast forward at Jesus' birth. These magi show up. They come from most likely the area of Persia, Iran, Iraq, and they recognize the fact that something amazing has happened. What is that amazing thing that has happened? That God has come to dwell among human beings. The thing that they thought never could happen, God does that. And so when the magi show up, what they do with Jesus is they bow down before him and they herald him as a king. At Jesus' birth, the tables have turned. Everything is on 
its head. They do not find a man seated next to Nebuchadnezzar or Darius or next to King Herod. They find a child seated on his mother's lap and they bow down and they become the first to recognize what is the end from the beginning. And that is the king has actually come. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's exactly how it starts with these guys coming to bow down before Jesus. Matthew is brilliant. It's my sermon number one. Okay? Sermon number two. Shorter than number one, I promise. Okay. Uh, number two is wise men. You can call them wise men. It is a perfectly acceptable translation of the word. Uh, Cicero uh, describes the Magi as being wise and learned men among the Persians. And so the Hebrew word they would use for wise men throughout most of the scriptures, it, it would reference kind of the idea of this, but it kept away from a lot of the magical connotations of it. Uh, the wise men, they bring gifts to Jesus because they are wise. That's why they bring gifts to Jesus. Many of the early church fathers saw significance in bringing of this gold and this frankincense and myrrh from the east. And with all the race relations today, it's really important to understand that these gifts that they brought were very Arabian in nature. Very much so. Uh, the early church fathers, Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, saw huge significance in this. Martin Luther even wrote this. As, At first they did not consider the king to be God, but in the usual manner took him, Jesus, for a temporal king. And what Luther does is he doesn't look back to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego because he's not Jewish. He's German. And what he does is he looks at the other rest of the scriptures and he sees this whole story of them being wise men coming out of 1 Kings 10. And this is where the queen of Sheba will come to a guy named Solomon who is king. And Luther writes this, When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon, his relationship with the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. And in 1 Kings 10, 7, she starts to ask Solomon all these questions. And she is astounded with his wisdom and how he answers all the questions that she has. And then she will lay her gifts of gold and spice and precious stones before him. She will thank the God of Israel for making Solomon king. So what you see then is these wise men come to Jesus. And they bring the same type of gifts that were well known in Arabia at the time. Chests of gold and frankincense and myrrh just like this queen did. Now, gold, it can reflect the worth of Christ, but gold was also really needed because Herod was going to follow these wise men and try and kill Jesus, and his parents needed to flee and go live somewhere else, for, somewhere else for a few years so they didn't die, and so the gold was used for that. Frankincense, it's, uh, it's representative of the incense that was burned in the temple, and it represents our prayers and praises that rise before God. Myrrh is also used as an embalming fluid foreshadowing Christ's death. And so that's how we see it. It may even be how God meant it to be seen after the cross and resurrection. But in those days, these gifts were a way to pay homage to a king. And Matthew is showing us that the wisdom of God was not to be found in a palace in Jerusalem, but in the small town of Bethlehem. And wise men come and they lay their gifts before this baby because they realize that something greater than Solomon and all of his wisdom is here. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the one who ultimately fulfills the Arabian queen's prayer in 1 Kings 10.9. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. My wife used to have this license plate frame on her car and it said, wise men still seek him. And it's true. And Matthew is brilliant if this is what he is doing. That's sermon number two. Number three, okay? You guys are tough crowd. Okay, number three. Okay, number three. Uh, 
Uh, you can also call them kings. If you go to if you go to any kids like pageant, the wise men are there and they got crowns and they're and looking like kings. They also go to see him as a baby. They didn't. He was about two years old when the wise men probably showed up. And there's probably more than three of them. We only say three because there's three gifts. And so we say songs like "We Three Kings of Orient Are." There you go. Anyway, so, so it, it was probably much, much more than that. Uh, the, the truth is the medieval church loved the idea of them being kings, so that's kind of is how it's handed down to us. A lot of the church reformers, as I said, hated that idea, but really they could have been kings. A lot of Matthew's gospel kind of pulls these things together like this. If you, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the last third of the book of Genesis is dominated by this guy named Joseph. And Joseph is a guy who rises to prominence in the country of Egypt because he interprets a dream. And he interprets different people's dreams. And so he becomes like a king who also interprets dreams. Uh, people saw King David like this. King David wrote a lot of psalms, and a lot of those psalms are very prophetic. And so he was like a wise man, but also a king. King Solomon was seen the exact same way. Uh, Herodotus, in his book, Histories in the 5th century, chronicles King Smyrtus, who was actually a Persian king, who was also a magi at the same time. So it does happen. As early as the 2nd century, Tertullian considered the Magi to be kings because he saw it as fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Uh, Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11 says, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And Tertullian saw this as being a fulfillment of other prophecies. Isaiah 60, verses 5 and 6. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praise of the Lord. And so he saw very clear parallels between this and Matthew 2 and what is going on. And and don't get me wrong. I believe this event happened. I do. But I think Matthew writes about it specifically the way he does so that we would understand what's taking place. And his Jewish audience would get that the real king has finally arrived. And we may never know this side of heaven whether there are kings or not, but the idea of kings bringing treasure from Babylon would have really resonated with the people, the Jewish people at this time. Uh, Matthew may even be pointing out that during the days of Isaiah, Isaiah, uh, King Hezekiah was ruling, and these people from Babylon came down. And what does Hezekiah do? He takes them down into his place, shows them his storehouses and his armory and his gold and his silver and the temple of the Lord. And Isaiah shows up, and he's like, what are you doing, dummy? These people are going to come and steal everything that you just showed them. Your hubris is going to be the downfall of us. In Isaiah 39, verse 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And very soon after that, 587 B.C. is when Nebuchadnezzar shows up and captures and plunders Jerusalem. Daniel, in his book in Daniel 5, even recounts this party where one of the kings is taking shots out of the, out of the cups that were used in the temple of God. It's, it's nuts. And if Matthew is meaning to call them kings, it would be showing that these kings are now bringing back stolen goods. And they're being laid at the feet of the true king. Because these kings would have traveled the road from Persia into Jerusalem. And they would have been bringing back this gold and this frankincense and this myrrh stolen so many years before from God's temple and his people and his city. And this is what Isaiah said would actually happen in Isaiah 60 verse 10. And what we celebrate at Christmas is these kings may be bringing back treasures to Jerusalem. Because what it would signal is the eternal restoration of God's people. And their true king who has actually come. And if that's what Matthew's doing... He's brilliant. He's brilliant. 
And I guess you can really call them whenever you want. Okay? I know it's a, it's a weird sermon like, okay, where's my takeaway? My takeaway is you can call them whenever you want. Magi, wise men, kings. Because when it came to how Matthew saw them, it could have been all three. It could have been, it could have been one of those. But we have a great vantage point after the cross and the resurrection to look back and see all that God is doing throughout the scriptures. And so you can call them Magi, and I think that's great. But if you do, you need to recognize the amazing fact that God has come in the flesh to a broken humanity to rescue and save us. God doesn't live just uninterested up in the heavens and we got to scream and wail really loud to get him to hear us. That God has come here to our plight in our broken world. He has come in Jesus to rescue us because we make horrible and stupid decisions every single day. You can also call them wise men. But if you do, you need to recognize the amazing fact that Jesus is the wisdom of God that has been sent into a world darkened by our own sin. And he reveals God to us. He is the revelation of God himself. And this can begin to be understood better in our celebration of Christmas. Or, thirdly, you can call them kings. And I think that's great. But if you do, you've got to realize the also amazing fact that Jesus is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And God promised that he would come and rule and reign forever in truth and justice and love and mercy. And so I think wherever you land on this, it's important to understand that these magi, these wise men, these kings are the first in the New Testament other than angels to really bow down and worship Jesus for who he really is. And I would say hopefully for us as a people, we learn to emulate their example by also laying our worship and our hope and all that we are at his feet. That We would lay our wisdom before him. Because if we do, you know what that would make us? Wise men. Right? We bow down all that we are for him because we realize our wisdom that we think is so great gets us into trouble so often. We're always doing these stupid things. And yet Jesus' wisdom from God revealed into our darkness that we run around in. This is the good news of the gospel, guys, that, that our God just didn't leave us to our devices and our own wisdom. He spoke truth and life and grace into the places that we are. This is one of the things that we celebrate at communion every week. It's where you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. That reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me because God is good, and he came into our brokenness to rescue and restore us. People in our world today that say, this, how, how could the wisdom of God be God's son dying for everybody? It's the wisdom of God because it flips everything on its head that this baby who was born would grow into a man, that he would die, he would resurrect, and through that death and resurrection would take away what stood between us and God and us and one another and bring us back into relationship with him again. And this is the beauty and the grace of who God is as our great king, as the wisest of all. And so we become a people who worship him in truth and wisdom and lay all that we are before him because he's good. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion to be some deacons in the back. If you need prayer for anything in your life today, they would love to pray with you about that. Um, if you are in a place where you want more wisdom and you're looking at your life and seeing how maybe sometimes you just totally screw everything up, and you just want somebody to pray for you in a non-judgmental way, they, they would love to pray with you. They'd love to pray God's wisdom over you and his, and his grace and that you'd begin to understand that he is our great king. And really, he is the only good king that has ever existed. And yet he steps into the place where we are to rescue and to save us because he is good. Um, there's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always meant to be a response to what God has done. Uh, there's some cookies outside. Joy was telling me all about them. And I was like, sounds great. She goes, so she goes do you want chocolate chip 
or M&M. And I go, chocolate chip. She goes, done. So she made me a little baggie of chocolate chip cookies. Sweet. So I don't know why I told you that. Uh, so you can grab some chocolate chip cookies. And if you do, maybe grab some sermon notes, the two little questions on there, and maybe talk to somebody at lunch today or dinner tonight or lunch sometime this week. And just those two little questions go a little bit deeper into what this means. You know, let, let God expand your horizon of all that he's doing in the scriptures because it all connects and comes together in the person of Jesus. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. And it's so full of grace and life and hope. All the things that God does to rescue us that many times we don't see. So I don't care if you call them magi or wise men or kings, whatever. We just realize that we are people who worship the king of kings who has come to rescue and save us. And that is an amazing gift that we all get. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being a God who comes to rescue us, that your peace has come to us because of what you have done. And I ask that you would teach us to be wise enough to lay our wisdom before you and to trust what you have spoken over us. That we'd be a people who seek you like these wise men because we realize that you have first been seeking and calling us and that we'd be undone by your grace and mercy. That your hope would rest upon us in ways that changes how we see the world around us. And that we would step out of our own self-centered worlds where we have all of our own wisdom that many times makes us forget who you are in the midst of our struggles. And we would understand that we can be called to live back in your wisdom and your hope and you have been seeking relationship with us. And that we would just be a people who are humbled and undone by that. Teach us to love you and honor you by understanding how you have first loved us. And you bring all things together at the proper time so we can be a people who understand who you are and live that out in this world so you gain great glory and we can live in your great joy because peace has come to us because of what you have done. We ask all these things in your son's good name. Amen.